Shalom. That's how, uh, that's how the Hebrews greeted people. They would say shalom, and people would say shalom back, and that meant uh, so many things. It meant hello. Yes, hello. Uh, but it also meant something more than that. It meant uh, praying and wishing somebody that they would experience shalom, uh, the full life that God had intended uh, and so at, at SunWest, we started incorporating this word shalom because it has so much, uh, so much depth to it. Uh, and we're, we're doing kind of a four-part series or four series under the umbrella of shalom. And we just finished a three-week uh, series looking at shalom with God, uh, living life with God, being at peace with God, being in right relationship with God. And, and that primarily happens uh, as we actually come to God, uh, recognizing who he is and who we are, and, and we use this word uh, called worship uh, often in church, and that's what worship is. It's, it's, it's a recognition of who God is. It's us responding to who God is, what he has done, and as we worship God, uh, we become like him because we become like that which we worship. And our whole world worships something. Uh, you can't not worship. We were created to worship. Uh, and, and the call of God is actually to, to bring our worship back to him. And as we worship him, we become who we were created to be. Uh, and, and so there, there's some things that we do at SunWest uh, that, that we intentionally do to invest in that relationship uh, with God. Uh, Kendall just mentioned it, the Hearing God class, which starts tonight something we do regularly a couple times a year, uh, and, and because we want to develop uh, a faith community that isn't just talking to God or asking God for things, uh, but one is living in a vibrant relationship with God, speaking to him, yes, but also hearing from him and responding to what he's saying. Uh, and something that we did a number of years ago, which we, we, we stopped, and even pre-COVID we stopped doing it, uh, was something we called Deep Stream, uh, which, was, uh, which were month or uh, Evenings that we would do once a month where we come together and we would uh, worship God uh, just more time than we have on a Sunday morning. We would do ministry time together. There'd be prayer teams. Um, there might be some deeper teaching that was uh, built off of what was happening on Sundays. Uh, but just a bit more time to invest uh, corporately in worship uh, to God together. Uh, and so we're looking forward to uh, starting that again and re- redoing that. So stay tuned more for that. Uh, as Kendall mentioned, we had a new worship pastor, so I haven't talked to him about this yet. So um, it's going to be added to his job description uh, pretty quickly. But uh, so we're looking forward to a gathering outside of just Sunday mornings uh, at a service we call Deep Stream. And uh, yeah, so uh, Shalom. As we mentioned, it's right, that word is right in our vision statement. Uh, shalom breakers, becoming shalom makers. If we follow Jesus, uh, this is what it would look like. If we follow Jesus for, uh, in a lifelong, authentic relationship uh, with him, we would actually start to experience shalom, not just experience it, and, uh, but also participate with God in bringing shalom uh, to this world. And we've diagrammed shalom like this. It's the right relationship with God, with self, with others, uh, with the world. And, and uh, the first series looked at this right relationship uh, with God. And we move right from that to talking about shalom with self. Living in a right relationship with ourself. Uh, and, and you'll see how, how intricate all these concepts are together. You can't actually separate them. Uh, and so in the beginning... Uh, when Adam and Eve chose not to worship God, uh, that affected the relationship with God, but it also affected the relationship with themselves. Uh, right away, when they, uh, when they made the mistake and did what God asked them not to do, they were hiding. They went hiding, and God said, where are you? Uh, and Adam said, we're hiding, and I think he missed the point of hiding. Um, 
But that was, that was the response that Adam and Eve had. And, we, and I remember when I had kids, uh, when they were younger, uh, I, would, I wouldn't know where they were sometimes. And usually when I didn't know where they were, it meant that they were doing something wrong. And then I would find them, I won't name names because they're much older now, um, but, you know, I'd find them, you know, underneath a blanket or behind a curtain somewhere, and then I'd get closer. And before I even saw them, I could smell them. And I'd say, what have you done? You know, and they did something that they knew they weren't supposed to do. Uh, you know, you're trying to potty train them, and they go and they hide, and they feel like the sense of shame because they know intuitively that I should be doing something different than I am doing right now, but I can't. And so they just respond by hiding. And so... This relationship with God, uh, humanity's response to God is to hide from God. And that's true uh, of all of us. When we don't do something we feel like we ought to do, it creates the sense of shame, uh, which promotes hiding. Uh, and so we are looking at what does it mean to actually be at shalom with self, to be at peace uh, with yourself, uh, because you become what you worship. And as we look at identity, we're going to take that a step further. Uh, and and to, today we're going to talk about how what informs you forms you. What informs you forms you. Where we get our ideas, our information, our stories, our understanding of the world and reality from actually shapes who we become. Uh, we live in a culture that says, uh, you do you. Have you guys heard this? You do you. Uh, you know, I think I've said this probably a hundred times to people, you know, uh, you know, it usually means, you know, they're going to do something unwise and I don't agree with it, or they're going to wear something that looks ridiculous. Hey, how do you think this looks? You know, I don't know. You do you, uh, which means I, in my opinion, doesn't look very good, but, uh, you might think it looks great. And if it looks great for you, then that's great. Uh, and so it kind of ignores any sense of there's a corporate, uh, global cultural understanding of what looks good. We just define what looks good by what looks good to you. So we say, ah, you do you. Decide who you want to be. Decide what is true. Decide what is real for you. Uh, And this has so many implications uh, for how we do life, how we understand truth, goodness, beauty, morality. Uh, But it has significant implications for how we understand identity. And one of the core questions when we think about identity and understanding who we are is do we find identity internally or externally. The motto of you do you, which I think summarizes our culture pretty well, is really saying you decide who you are. You decide who you are. And that is actually quite different. Uh, It's quite different than uh, how we've understood identity throughout history, which is that there were external factors that actually told us who we are. And so a primary question that we need to look at in our culture is, how do we understand identity? Do we understand identity by what I think, who I want to be, who I think I should be, uh, I can decide who I want to be, or is there something external that actually identifies who I am? And of course, the Bible is really all about this, and it starts this way right in the very beginning. And as you go through the series, you'll notice we keep going back to Genesis. Why? Because Genesis actually creates a narrative. It creates a foundation, a worldview for how people who want to follow God can actually understand the world. Uh, And so in Genesis 1 and 2, as we've looked at in the beginning, there's God, and God created the heavens and the earth. He created creation, the world. He created animals, and then he created humans. And he 
he had a certain order to creation. Obviously, he was God. Uh, we were not, uh, but we were also not like the rest of creation, that we were made separate from creation. And so Adam and Eve were put in the garden, in the world, to govern, to subdue it, to take care of it, uh, to rule over it. But they were under God. And the, the name Adam uh, became a proper name, uh, but in the first couple of chapters of Genesis, uh, it's not a proper name. The name Adam comes from the Hebrew word Adam, spelled the same way, which means human. And the name Eve is the Hebrew word Shava, which is life. And so the people of God have always looked at the story of Genesis as an understanding of how we as humans and how this life has got to the state that it's in. It's not just a story about Adam and Eve, although it is that. It's also a story about us, and it gives us an orientation, an understanding of who we are as humans and how we understand our life. So this interpretive framework should be the way that we view what is happening in our world and, what it, and how we understand what is happening in our world. So in that story of Genesis 1, God creates Adam and Eve in his own image. So God, so God created mankind in Genesis 1.27, and that word is Adam. So God created Adam in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So God created humankind, male and female, in the image of God. And it says that in Genesis chapter 1. A few chapters later in Genesis chapter 5, it also says that when God created Adam, mankind, he made them in the likeness of God. He created them male and female and blessed them, and he, and he named them mankind when they were created. Now, we mentioned the image of God uh, a little bit in the series when we talked about shalom with God, uh, but now we really need to dive more into what this means because this has so much to do with our identity. The wonder of being a human person is our ability in our minds to actually uh, imagine something or think about something that, is not, uh, that does not yet exist or isn't reality. We can have ideas in our minds that don't, don't correspond to reality. What is and what isn't uh, the, world, the rest of the world lives according to what is, but humans are the only ones that can actually imagine and think about something that isn't. This is what separates us from animals. We are the only creatures who have the capacity who can imagine what isn't, but what could be. I mean, this is just, if you just take a step back and you think about it, uh, this is true, not just because the Bible says so, but because it actually is true. When you look at society... When you look at the world, when you look at what man has created, which other creation in all of creation is able to actually materialize something that didn't exist before? When you think of uh, bears, you know, we live in the Rocky Mountains. When you think of bears, uh, you know, they just kind of live the same kind of life. You know, they, they eat a lot. They eat and they eat and they eat and they get fat. And then they sleep and they hibernate for half of the year. And I know some of you sound, think that sounds amazing. <laughs> But can you imagine a bear thinking, man, I just feel so self-conf, I feel like a lack of self-confidence in my body shape. You know, I've been eating for four months and I've been just, I gained like a hundred pounds. I'm feeling down about myself. You know, I think I'm going to sleep it off. And then they sleep for months and months and months. And they're like, I just feel, feel like I'm wasting my life away just sleeping. I feel like I was created for more than this. You know, you don't think of bears uh, thinking like that. Or living like that. They just do what they do because they were bears. 
you know, you think of, uh, uh, you think of gazelles. Uh, you know, I don't know about gazelles a bunch, but they, they live in Africa, right? And, uh, you know, they live life and they run around and they try and survive and they get chased by lions. That's just what they do. You know, do you, do, you, do you picture gazelles being like, you know what, enough of this getting chased by lions. I'm going to turn the script. From now on, we're going to chase lions. No more of this. You know, and we're going to change the way it is. No, that is just what it is. You know, you think of beavers. You know, beavers have been making uh, dams their whole life. You know, do you think beavers ever get just tired of doing the same thing day after day after day? You know, I've been making dams forever. I'm going to start making bridges. I really feel like I'm called I'm called to make bridges. No more of this damn life. <laughs> you know, it, be, beavers, you know, we, we would just know, like, this is just what they do. This is what they were created to do. But when we put humans in those spots, we would think, man, wouldn't you long for more? Wouldn't you want more? Wouldn't you, you want to participate and do something more than just doing the same thing year over year, day after day, week over week, generation after generation. Yes, of course, because you're human. You were created not with just the capacity, but the desire and the longing to create, to imagine, to have ideas in your brain and your thoughts that actually don't correspond with reality the way it is, but correspond with reality the way it could be. And so the po- there's a positive side to actually having ideas that don't correspond to reality, to believing in unreality, and that's that you can participate and build things and create things. We have a capacity for imagination, and this is the miracle that we have in our human society, uh, that we as humans are able to do so many things. But there's a negative side to being able to imagine things that aren't current reality. It's that we have the capacity as humans to believe a lie and an illusion that is not true and doesn't correspond with what is true. We have the capacity to start to believe things that don't actually line up with truth and reality. And so we were created to create, yes, we were created to have ideas that don't, aren't actually planted in the, the way the world currently is, but this has potential to create destruction or to create life. This actually leaves us susceptible to actually fall in love with God's truth and beauty and what he wants to do in the world or leaves us susceptible to believe lies and things that are untrue and create destruction in the world. And so we get to ideas. Humans have ideas. We all have ideas. Uh, The way that we interpret reality, the way that we think things work. Uh, Some uh, philosophers call this having mental maps. Uh, some people call it worldview. Some people call it paradigms. Uh, I think a few weeks ago, I used the term meta-narrative. Uh, and my wife said to me, I, you know, you probably should explain what you meant by meta-narrative. I was like, oh, yeah. Uh, you know, meta-narrative just means grand story. It means the story that is bigger than our story, uh, in which we actually have an understanding or a context for our own story. There's all, there's all sorts of ways to talk about it. Uh, but uh, but the, the idea of mental maps, we'll just pick that one, can be helpful. We have these ideas this understanding of reality, how we interpret reality, uh, and we have mental maps. And you can, you can picture, uh, you, know, you know those old school maps? Um, I, had a, I had a realtor that I used for, you know, when I, had a, when I bought a couple houses earlier in her life. Um, he used to go to SunWest. I, I, you know, I won't 
say his name, it rhymes with John Clausen. Uh, but he would, uh, he would, in his glove box, I remember we were going to look at houses, and he's like, I just got to figure out where we're going. And he would open up his glove, glove box, and he would pull out just stacks of maps, physical maps. I mean, I, th- I think it's hilarious. I mean, I don't know, you know, sorry if I'm insulting some of you. I don't know people that use physical maps. Um, John would pull out physical maps, and he would, like, flip through this book, you know, we're going into Sundance, and he'd figure out, according to these maps, I'm like, John, there's phones for this. There's computers for this. You know, people find out where they're going, and they just say, you know, the address, and it figures out the map for you. <laughs> Mind-blowing. Um, but throughout all history, people have had a way of mapping out reality. Uh, now we got phones, and like I said, our phones will tell us how do we get from point A to point B. But if you start to actually drive the same routes over and over again, you develop a mental map that you don't even need a physical map. You don't need a phone. Uh, you just actually intuitively know where you're going. How many of you have driven home from work, and you got to your driveway, and you were like, I don't remember getting here? Anybody? Is, isn't that frightening? Isn't that frightening that you get someplace and you actually don't remember driving there? That's frightening. Uh, But what that is, what that is, it's a mental map. It's a way of actually understanding yourself and the context of the world that you live in that is helping you navigate and get from some place to another place. Now, we we, we know that about geography, but the the, the same is true in life. That we have mental maps, that we have paradigms, we have worldviews, meta-narratives, grand stories, whatever you want to call it, that actually inform us of how we understand where we are on the ground at this time and this place. They inform us of who we are. They inform us of where we're going or not going. And even when you're not thinking about it, they're actually directing you. These maps are directing you. They're directing me. These ideas are directing us. What informs us forms us, whether we're aware of them or not. That's why they're called meta-narratives, because we're not aware of them. And so what we give our attention to will actually shape the people that we become. It starts to shape our identity, who we are, what we think about ourselves, how we understand reality, how we understand God. And so we should take special consideration on where we get our ideas from. Now think about this. I heard an American stat that said, and I'm sure us Canadians are not that different. Um, the average American adult watches TV five to six hours a day. Five to six hours a day. The average millennial, who is someone my age and younger, you know, I like to just creep myself in there, kind of just made it in, um, is on their phone four hours a day on average. So, On average, these stats add up to about a decade of your entire life. A decade of your life in front of a TV, in front of a screen, being informed, maybe incredibly unintentionally, uh, about a worldview and meta-narrative or belief systems, different ideas. Now compare that to the amount of time that we might spend considering God's story, God's ideas, what God says about the world, what God says about us. My, my guess is uh, those numbers are nowhere close. And so just think about the, the meta-narrative, the mental nap that's developing in you and I over time as we spend a decade of our life 
just receiving ideas and content, and then compare that to the amount of intentionality we have with which, in terms of rooting ourselves in the story of God. So back to our ideas. Our, our capacity to hold unreality in our minds is our genius as humans, but it's also our Achilles heel. Because not only can we imagine unreality, we can also come to believe in unreality, and we can put faith in ideas that are or untrue, or worse, ideas that are lies. We actually, as humans, are susceptible to believing in untrue ideas, which we call lies, which brings us to Genesis chapter 3. So God creates Adam and Eve. He creates them in the image of God with a certain identity, understanding of the story, where they fit in the order of creation, who they were, how they were to live, how they were to relate to God. And in Genesis chapter 3, everything starts to shift in the story because there's another character who comes onto the scene, uh, and it's the character that we know as the devil, who comes in the form of a snake. Now, the word uh, devil, uh, it's, it's a title, uh, and it, it, it comes from the word diabolos, which means to slander or to accuse. It can be translated as accuser. Scripture also calls him the Satan, the evil one, the tempter, the destroyer, the deceiver, the great dragon who deceives the entire world in Revelation, or the serpent who leads Adam and Eve astray in the story of the garden. Three times Jesus refers to the devil as the prince of this world. And the word prince uh, in the Greek language means the highest ranking uh, Roman official. It would have been a Roman official at that time because of Romans in power. The highest ranking Roman official in a region or a city. So Jesus was saying that, that, that Satan, the devil, the prince of this world is the highest ranking creature, the most powerful and influential creature in the world. We know that the devil was created by God. He's not an equal with God, and this is important. He, he's not opposite to God. There's not like, you know, often you see like, you know, the you know, angel or God, and then you see Satan on the shoulders and like all these uh, memes and stuff. Uh, they're not equals. Uh, the devil was created by God. He had a beginning, and he also has an end, as we see in Scripture. His original role, he had an original role, which seems to actually be to test human beings, to help them in their spiritual formation by testing them. But he began to drift from, his, from, from this intent and use his skills to tempt human beings, not into spiritual formation, but into spiritual deformation. And why did this happen? Because he, he sat on God's counsel, and there was a, there was a group of hand-selected uh, beings who, who God chose to collaborate with. Uh, but this being, this devil, actually chose to rebel against God's rule, to seize the world's throne for himself, and to do uh, life apart from God's design, similar to what Adam and Eve were about to do. If Jesus' anthem was on earth as it is in heaven, the devil's anthem is on earth as it is in hell. They're working in two opposite directions. For Jesus, the devil is real. There is no doubt about it. In the worldview of Jesus, the devil is real. He wasn't a myth. He wasn't just a cartoon character. He wasn't just something from a horror movie. He was a real being. And sometimes we think we're more sophisticated and we don't believe in devils anymore or demons. Uh, but this should, we should pause there because... Uh, what if Jesus had a better handle on reality than you and I did? Is it possible? I mean, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're saying, 
Not only is it possible, that's what I'm begging on. That's what I put my faith in. Jesus believed that the devil was real. Um, and C.S. Lewis, uh, talking about this, he says, there are, no, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and have, uh, inhale a materialist or a magician with the same delight. So what C.S. Lewis is warning us against is, is, is actually just believing that the devil's make-belief and he doesn't exist. But he's also warning us against making the devil bigger than he actually is. That, that both uh, are opposite errors. And so as followers of Jesus, we ought to take his cue and recognize, you know, the devil is real. Who is the devil? What is the strategy? What is he up to? Uh, but also knowing who God is uh, and that God is ultimately God and the devil is not, and they're not on the same playing field. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about the devil uh, this morning. Uh, you probably didn't come to church expecting me to spend so much time talking about the devil, uh, but I think it's, we need to actually understand uh, what the, who the devil is and what he's all about as we understand our place in the story of God. Uh, and so the devil, uh, the devil's motive is death. His motive is to spread death and destruction. Uh, that is his end game. Uh, C.S. Lewis also said there's no neutral ground in the universe. Every square inch, every split second is claimed by God and counterclaimed by Satan. So there's a, a battle going on for God's dream for the world and for us and also the, the plans of the devil to bring destruction and death. He is the anti-creator. Now this is important to recognize. The devil was not created in the image of God, but humanity was created in the image of God. We were created to create. The devil doesn't create. He's the anti-creator. He destroys. He distorts. He manipulates. He creates confusion. And the end goal of creating confusion is death and destruction. And so if he can't create, you guys staying with me here? No? Yes? Are you guys with me? Okay. If the devil can't create, and he wants to create death and destruction, what does he do? Well, his means for doing this is lies. Everybody say lies. So now let's think about this for a second. What separates humanity from the rest of creation? You were created in the image of God. Why? Because you can imagine that which does not exist. You can have ideas uh, that are beyond the way things currently are. And these ideas form how you create and how you live in this world. Because we can create. So we have ideas about the future. You can see and imagine things that don't currently exist. The devil is not creating God's image. He can't create, but his end goal is destruction and death. So how does he do that? Well, he convinces those that can create to believe in lies. To believe in lies. He creates reality and destruction by deceiving image bearers, God's image bearers, those created in his image, to believe in ideas that aren't true. He deceives them to trust ideas that don't align with God's reality or what God wants to do in the world. This is the way that the devil creates destruction and death. Now, Jesus, speaking of the devil, in John chapter 8, he says, uh, and he's speaking to religious leaders. He said, you belong to your father, the devil. Uh, that's an insult. Uh, you belong to the devil. 
Uh, and he's your father. And you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer. Everybody say murderer. He was a murderer from the beginning. Death, destruction. Not holding to the truth. For there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language. For he is a liar and the father of lies. He's the father of lies. Translation, the origin point of deception is with the devil. When he lies, he speaks his native language. That is what he speaks. That is what he does. That is his means. His goal is murder. His goal is death. His goal is destruction. But the way he does that is through lies. There's no truth in him. Now, that's his means. Now, the devil's strategy, uh, how does he do this? How does he actually implant lies in God's image bearers, those who are created to reflect God to the rest of the world? Uh, Well, he does this by isolating, by casting doubt on who God is and who we are, by appealing to our disordered desires, and we're going to talk about that a lot next week. And then he offers a simple shortcut. You can get from point A to point B by going this way. You don't have to go that way. And if he's successful in the strategy, he will have convinced you to seize autonomy from God and then to redefine good and evil for yourself. If he's successful in the strategy, you will find yourself in autonomy from God and redefining what is good and what is evil for yourself. So back to Genesis 3. God creates humans in his image, gives them a mental map, a grand story of how to live, puts them in creation over creation to govern and take care of it. Then the devil, the serpent, comes along with his motive to kill, to steal, to destroy, with his method to lie, and then his strategy to implant those lies. So he isolates, and we, find, we see that he waits till Eve is all alone in the garden. The text says Eve is by herself. And the serpent comes, isolated. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals, it says. And the word crafty here is actually the same word as deceitful. He's more deceitful. Uh, The Lord God, any of the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? So what does he do after he gets Eve in isolation? He lies. He implants a lie. And in that lie... He's planting doubt about God. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And some scholars find this significant that this is the first point in the creation story that a human talks about God as if he's not present. It's the first time a human talks about God as an idea instead of talking to God directly. Eve is talking about God with Satan as if he's not there. And so even in the question, even in the baiting of the question, Satan is actually luring Eve into this idea that God is not even there. If the devil can get us thinking about God instead of talking with God, he's halfway to accomplishing his job. Now think about it. How often do we talk about God, but we actually spend little energy talking to or hearing from God? So Eve's talking about God as if God isn't there. Eve responds, to this question. And, and notice that uh, the devil says, uh, did God really say that you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And there is a, there, there is a lie with a half-truth in there. And we often uh, don't believe blatant lies. 
You know, you know if, if we're somewhat wise, somewhat smart, somewhat aware, we don't believe blatant lies, uh, but we are more likely to believe half-truths. Right? So God said something like that. He said, don't eat from this one tree. But the first commandment of God was actually to eat freely from any tree in the garden. And so in this lie, Satan is, is actually casting doubt on God's character, on what God said. And it sounds like it's true, but it's not completely true. There was one tree. And this is how Eve responds. She said, there was one tree that God said not to eat from, but he said that we're free to actually eat from any of the other trees. And God told me, this is what you say, that if I eat of that tree, then I'm going to certainly die. And then the certain responds by saying, you will not certainly die. Here's lie number two. The serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened. Lie number two, you will not certainly die. He appeals to desire. He appeals to the fruit. Doesn't the fruit look shiny? Doesn't it look great? You could have it. You could taste it. And if you eat it, then he, then he appeals to a deeper desire. Your eyes will be opened. You will see more. You'll understand more. And then comes the third lie, and then you will be like God, knowing good and evil. We often don't pick up on that third lie. What's happening there? Well, Genesis 1.27, it says, So God created mankind in his own image, and the image of God he created them. We looked at that. Genesis 5, verse 1 to 2 says, When God created mankind, he created them in the likeness of God. Genesis 1, Genesis 5, right in the middle, we have Genesis 3, where the serpent comes and says, If you eat this fruit, you will be like God. Well, which one is it? Are they like God or are they not like God? We can't be tempted by something we don't have a desire for, but every desire we have was given to us by God. So the serpent couldn't actually tempt them with anything they didn't already have. So he only had one option, to deceive, to lie, to convince them that they weren't that which they already were. If he could convince them that they weren't made in the likeness of God and that they were lacking, then they would have a motive to actually act differently and disobey God. They created doubt. Satan came and created doubt about who God was and about who they were. He created doubt about God's character and about their identity. And it was subtle. You will be in, made in God's likeness if you do this when God had already said who they were. And I always thought the mistake of Adam and Eve was that they had pride or they were too greedy. And so they took, they took it because they wanted to be in control of their own life. And there's an element of that that's true. Uh, but the greater story is that the reason Adam and Eve took the fruit was not because they were too prideful, but because they were deceived and they believed a lie about themselves. And they believed a lie about who God was. What informs us forms us. The voice they chose to listen to was not God's voice, but a different voice. The mental map they chose to follow was not the one that God laid out, but a different one. And as you know, they decide not to listen to God's voice. They believe a lie. And then they create. Because we can't not create. We're human beings. God created us to create. We were created in his image. And the untruth that they believed actually changed the course of human history. 
And I've never noticed this line before, but right in Genesis 5, when it talked about man being created in the image of God, it goes on and it says, uh, God created mankind. He made them in, his, in the likeness of God. He created the male and female, blessed them, and he named them ma- mankind when they were created. And then it says, when Adam had lived 130 years, he had a son in his own likeness, in his own image, and he named him Seth. Never noticed that before. But Adam recreates, not in the likeness of God, but into his own likeness now. God created us out of his own likeness, out of who he was, out of his essence, and then Adam ended up doing the same. The voice that Adam listened to changed the course of history. The voice, the mental map, the narrative that he believed actually changed everything. The one that we choose, the narrative that we choose will determine your identity and will in term, it'll determine the impact that you have in the people in your life and the world around you and the legacy that you leave after you. Which voice are you listening to? But the story isn't, at, the, the story isn't over. And this is why we get to talk about this idea and what God is doing because the story isn't over because Adam isn't the only Adam. What are you saying? Well, Scripture actually refers to a second Adam. The second Adam is Jesus. Jesus was not born in the lineage of Adam. He was born of a virgin. He was not born in the likeness of Adam. He was born in the likeness of God. He was born of spirit, like the very first Adam, created from God himself. He came to create a new humanity, is what we read in the New Testament, a new creation a new lineage. And so last series, we talked about a relationship with God. We talked about how we can have confidence in who God is and what God is like and that we're worshiping God correctly because of who Jesus is, that Jesus actually represents God. Jesus is the exact representation of God is what Hebrews says. And so that is true. So as we worship Jesus, we can have confidence that we're worshiping what God is actually like. But there's a divine mystery that the church has proclaimed for all of its history that Jesus was not only fully God, but Jesus was fully human. This is the dual nature of Christ. We not only discover what God is like through Christ, we actually discover what humanity is supposed to look like as well. Jesus is more fully human than you and I. Jesus both fully represents God and he fully represents humanity. Jesus is the new Adam. That's what Paul refers to him in Romans chapter five. Jesus is the new Adam. If you want to know what human identity looks like, you look to Christ. Blaise Pascal said, not only do we know God through Jesus Christ alone, but we know only ourselves by Jesus Christ. Klein Snodgrass wrote a book uh, called, uh, sorry, I forget the title. It's talking about your identity, who you are with God. And he said, the purpose of the gospel is to make us fully human. Jesus came to reveal the character of God, yes, but just as much as he reveals to us the character of being human. Jesus, like the first Adam, uh, will come like the second Adam to deal with the motive, the methods, and the strategy of the devil And where the first one failed, where the first Adam failed, the second Adam, we know, succeeded. And so a reminder of the devil's strategy to isolate, to cast doubt about who God is, who you are, appeal to desire, and then offer a shortcut 
right? His end goal is to create death and destruction. His method is to plant lies. And if he's successful on this, we will cease autonomy from God and we will define what is good and evil for ourselves instead of relying on what God says. And so Jesus comes on the scene as the second Adam. And we see that in Matthew chapter four, uh, he is led into the wilderness by God. Why? Because where the first Adam failed, Jesus succeeds. And so this story takes place not in a garden, but in the wilderness. And so after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, if you're the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Pause. If you were to go back one chapter, Jesus was baptized. And this is like literally the story right before the story. Jesus comes out of the water and a voice from heaven said this. What does it say? Is my son. It's a statement of identity. This is my son whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. Satan comes on the scene while Jesus is isolated in the wilderness by himself, being opportunistic, and it comes to him with the lie that is intended to create doubt about who God his Father is and who he is as a son of the Father. He comes, the first temptation, before he even actually gives the temptation, he says, if you're the son of God, that's the preface, if you're the son of God. When God himself had just told Jesus that he is God's son, whom he loves and whom he is well pleased. So Satan shows up to cast doubt on who God is, on who he is. And he says, uh, tell these stones to become bread. And then he comes again and he says, the devil took him by took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. And he starts again, if you're the son of God, planting a seed of doubt about his identity, who God is. Then he said, throw yourself down for it is written. He will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. And then lastly, the third time, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give to you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. So we see the strategy of the devil again, not only in the garden, but in the wilderness, that, that he, he shows up in a moment of isolation for Jesus, offers a suggestion that creates doubt about who God is and who Jesus is at the core of his identity. And then the devil appe- appeals to his human desires. Are you hungry? I mean... The, the text, if you remember, said that Jesus was fasting for 40 days, and then it says it was, or he was hungry. That's an understatement. He was hungry, full stop. And then the devil comes and said, you're hungry? Turn these stones into bread. He appeals to his human desire. You want power? Everything you see can be yours. You want fame? Sorry, you want fame, everything you see can be yours. You want power, throw yourself, God will save you, and you will have influence and power, and people will think you're spectacular. You see, the Satan is, he's trying to tempt Jesus by human desire. Power, fame, hunger. And he's saying, there's a shortcut. You don't have to do all of this. You could have you, you, if you just worship me, you could have everything anyways. You don't have to go to the cross. You don't have to bear that. You don't have to fast. You could just feed yourself. Decide for yourself, Jesus. This is right here for you. Here's the shortcut. Let me appeal to your desires. 
So how did Jesus respond? Every time the temptation came, Jesus responded by speaking truth back to the lie. Satan comes and deceives, lies. Jesus responds by quoting scripture, the word of God, back to Satan. Now, Satan actually quotes scripture back to Jesus, and then Jesus goes back. I mean, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have a scripture war with Jesus, but uh, he tries, but he doesn't win. See, Jesus knows truth. Jesus knows reality. Jesus knows what God wants to do in the world. Jesus has a mental map, a paradigm, a worldview, a conviction and a belief about who God is, about who he is, about what God has said, about his identity. And so in the moment of isolation, in the moment of weakness, in the moment uh, where Satan is appealing to those human desires, where Satan is giving him a shortcut that he doesn't have to actually go through the battle he's about to go through, Jesus can refuse it because he's anchored on the mental map that he got from the Father. He can actually identify a good idea with a bad idea. He can identify a truth from a lie. He doesn't fall into temptation to decide for himself. And so the first Adam listened to a voice other than God's to orient his whole identity and perception of what is true, of what is good, of what is beautiful. God said, this is true, good, and beautiful. And Adam and Eve said, you know what? I like this voice better. I'm going to follow this one. The second Adam, Jesus showed up and he listened to God's voice and God's voice alone. It was the anchor that got him through the lies. It helped him identify what were lies and what were true. It was the anchor that actually stopped him from just embracing human impulse and desire, even though that was probably very attractive and tempting when he had been fasting in the wilderness for 40 days. The second Adam created reality out of those lies that he bought into his ideas. And the, uh, sorry, the first Adam created lies out of those things that he believed, which impacted us all. And the second Adam actually created reality out of those ideas that we were invited to join today as well. See, the battle for the world, the battle against death and destruction is not a battle against fighter jets, nuclear bombs. It's not a battle against them, whatever, whoever them is. It's actually a battle of ideology. It's a battle of lies and truth. Because of the destruction and death that we experience on this earth is what happens when human beings start to believe a lie and they start to live out those lies. And so for you and I, the question is the same as it was for the first Adam and the second Adam. Which voice will you listen to? Which voice will you believe? The devil's voice? Your own voice? The voice of the world? Or will you trust God's voice? To trust God, coming back to the, the question that I started with, do we find identity outside of ourselves or inside of ourselves? The answer unequivocally is outside of ourselves. We find our identity in who we are because of who God says that we are. When we believe that, when we trust that story, that meta narrative, that mental map, and we let that orient our entire life and the decisions that we make, we actually begin to co-partner with God and what, what he wants to do in this world. But the beginning point is actually understanding who we are. It means that you choose an identity not because you decide this is who I want to be, but you choose an identity because you say this is 
who actually God called me to be, who he created me to be. And I become fully who I am when I trust in that and I believe in that. I'm gonna invite you to stand with me, with us. The whole shalom project of God is to actually bring heaven to earth. And the incredible responsibility we have as God's image bearers is what Adam and Eve had in the beginning is that they were put in a place to influence their world, to create a world that didn't yet exist out of their essence. And so we stand here today at the same crossroads. Which voice will you believe in? Are you going to participate with God who wants to bring heaven to earth, who wants to bring shalom to earth? And it actually understands with the image bearers that he created being at peace with who God created them to be? Or will you listen to the voice that wants to bring hell on earth, bring destruction, bring death, speak lies? Which voice will you listen to? The voice that you listen to will determine the world that you create. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you speak truth. We thank you that you haven't left us in the dark, that we are not unaware of the devil's schemes. Lord, he's been doing the same strategy since the beginning of time. And Lord, we thank you that your strategy, your method, your means, your motive is actually to save and redeem the humans you created to reflect your image. And so again this morning, Lord, we say yes to your voice. We say yes to what you say is true. We say yes to who you say you are. We say yes to who you say we are. Lord, may we orient our entire lives out of that narrative and that narrative alone. Lord, may we create a world internally and externally around us that reflects heaven and doesn't reflect hell. Lord, in a world that looks more and more like it reflects hell, may we be a light on a hill that refuses to be hidden. May we be salt on this earth. Lord, may we be your image bearers, your vessels to do what you want to do in the world because we were created to actually represent you to the world. In the name of Jesus, I pray. I've mentioned this uh, in the past, but this question of do we understand our identity internally or externally? And our world has answered that question in the last hundred years by saying internally. Uh, There is a corresponding scale to that answer in the ramp up of anxiety, depression, a sense of being lost because we were never meant to answer that question internally. We're incapable of answering it internally. It it, it makes us mad. It, It gives us no grip on reality and truth. Now, I know people will think, well, if the answer is externally, uh, then what does that mean for my money? What does that mean for my relationships? What does that mean for my sexuality? What does that mean for gender? What does that mean for, we could list all of the questions in our culture, and those are all really, really important questions. But when we start with that question, we're starting in the wrong place. The first question is, 
which voice will you listen to? All of those other things are actually determined by the story and the voice that you listen to, the, the story that you're going to believe. Now, if I choose to believe God and what God says about who he is and who I am, then that has a whole bunch of implications, and that's why we have a journey of faith. And that's why we have grace. But Jesus invites us to a journey of faith and grace to trust his voice and his story and to believe and to trust that he knows reality better than us. That for us to believe that and to put our faith in it is actually to our greatest benefit and our greatest joy. And when we choose to ignore that and look internally for those answers, we don't find joy. We find death. We find destruction. We find anxiety. We find lostness. Now, as we go through these next couple of weeks, I think this is the place we ought to start, is which voice will you listen to? Before you think about everything that means, because God isn't running ahead of you. He's going to move with us one step at a time. But which voice will you choose to listen to? Will you listen to his voice on who he says he is and who he says you are? Because that will actually implicate everything. So let us pray. Uh, We have uh, prayer teams available after the service. They would love to pray for you. Um, Starting point uh, will be happening after second service. We invite you to come back and join that at 1230. And hearing God tonight at 6 o'clock. So Father, we thank you. Uh, We thank you again that you have made reality and truth known to us. That we don't have to guess, that we don't have to wonder that when the enemy comes and says, if, we don't have to entertain the if because we can say is. We can say what is. Lord, I pray that we would hear your voice, not even just what your voice is saying, but the tone of your voice. Lord, that we hear the tone of your voice, which is full of compassion, love, grace, As Paul says in Romans chapter 2, it's the kindness of the Lord that leads us to repentance. It's the kindness of the Lord that leads us. Repentance means to change our minds. It's the kindness of the Lord that leads us to change our minds, to change the way that we think. And so, Lord, we hear your truth, but we also hear the way you speak your truth. And so we, again, say yes to your voice. Lord, would you teach us what it means to say yes to your voice? Would we orient our whole lives based on you and what you've said in your kingdom. Lord, we want to be a part of what you're doing in our world. We want to be a part of bringing heaven to earth. May that be so. May that be so. In Jesus' name, amen. It's great to be with you guys. Uh, We'll see you next week as we jump into week two. And prayer teams are available at the front if you'd like.